He's their covenant God. He's their covenant God. Now, what does that mean? Well, I like to explain it with, with, with uh, two circles, and I don't have the board here, so I'm going to just draw them in the air. All right? There's an inner circle, which is a solid line. Then there's an external circle, which is a dotted line. Okay? Our children are born inside, if they're covenant children, seed of believers, are born inside of that dotted line, but not inside the inner circle. They need to be born again. They need to be transferred from the external covenant privileges into the internal essence of the covenant from which they cannot break out. So this is biblical. There are three or four texts in the Bible that say, you've broken my covenant. Then there are a couple other texts that say, my covenant's unbreakable. And people have, unbelievers, have taken those texts and said, you understand something? The Bible's full of contradictions. When I was a, a teenager, I was, well, after the Lord saved me, I was, I was full of zeal. And I thought, I thought just like Luther, if I could just explain to everybody about the freeness, the fullness, the beauty of the gospel, the whole, everyone would believe. Well, <laughs> I needed to learn that I couldn't convert anyone and that God didn't need me <laughs> and that conversion is the work of grace as it was in me, it is in everyone else, and we're blind until our eyes are open. But, you see, what happened is I came across an article that said 1,000 contradictions in the Bible, and you can buy it for $2. I, I regretted having to pay $2 to such an organization, but I was going to go through all 1,000 contradictions, and I was going to prove them wrong. I was going to send it to them and have them all change their mind. I mean, idealism par excellence. But the first one on the list was this. The Bible says the covenant's breakable, and the Bible says the covenant's unbreakable. Can't be both ways. Bible contradicts itself. No. No, not at all. Because when children grow up under all the privileges of the covenant, from the parents, from the, grand, from, from the grandparents, from the, from, from the Christian school or, or homeschooling, from the church, the, the catechism classes, the sermons, they're just not like every other Gentile child that you know, is brought up in a Gentile atmosphere of, of no faith. No, no, no. God says, just like in Israel, these children belong to me. They still have to be saved. Not all of Israel is of Israel. Still have to be saved. So what that means is that we, of all people, as parents and grandparents, we ought to understand, like, like the world never understands, that our children, in one sense, are our children. I mean, they have our name. We're called to raise them. In another sense, they're just loaned to us from God to be raised according to the way God wants us to raise them. So, if you had to boil down parenting into one sentence and say, what's, you could collapse all the parenting down into one sentence, what would you say? 
I would say it like this, and I think we all come sh- we've all come short of it a thousand times, <laughs> 10,000 times, but I would, I would say the best thing you could do as a parent or grandparent is to put into the consciousness of your mind, as close as you can to the surface of your mind, that all your parenting should just reflect this question. How would God want me to respond? If God were the parent, how would God want me to respond in this situation? I need to respond the way he would want me to respond. I need to do what he would do. Whether it's discipline, whether it's encouragement, whatever it is. Because I'm just just his caretaker. I'm his guardian for the children he's entrusted to me and the grandchildren. So once you understand that, you see, then you understand that your children are born inside that, I, I call it a doubted, dotted line, because as the children grow up, if they're not saved, they may well break out and reject Christianity altogether and break out of that circle and become a Gentile child. And, and on the Day of Judgment, of course, they'll be held to account for everything, everything that they've rejected. And hell will be double hell for them. Absolutely, absolutely. On the other hand, even if they become a Gentile child and they're outside of that circle, even the outer circle, doesn't mean that it's impossible for God to bring them back, but it's not as common. It's not as common. God tends to work in covenantal lines. You see that with Israel. You see it with the New Testament church. So it's a privilege to be brought up under that external covenant but never a substitute for true conversion, okay? That's the, that's the balance you need to maintain in, in Scripture. So they belong to the Lord, and you may plead on that covenant basis, Lord, have they not been baptized? Have they not been set apart? A call to live a different lifestyle. And you, you can raise them that way too. Tell them that. You, you can't live like the world lives. God has put his mark upon you. God has put his triune name upon you. God is willing to be your God. So this is not a position of salvation. It's a position of advantage. They've got privileges. The worldly, ungodly children brought up among a heathen society in a heathen way don't, don't possess. Number three. We are to bring our children to Christ by surrendering them to the Lord. They belong to the Lord, but we have to surrender them to the Lord. So, we're not just presenting our children to the Lord on the day of their baptism. We are surrendering them every day of their lives to the Lord in total dependence upon Him to impart to them all the benefits of salvation that he has purchased by his perfect life and by his substitutionary death. And surrendering our children to God day by day is an act of faith. And the primary way we do that is through prayer. We surrender them through prayer. How do you do that? Well, when you go to bed at night after you've, well, in the morning, of course, you hurry to the cross, as as Spurgeon said of Job, that he brought sacrifices every morning to his children. Of course, we don't bring sacrifices anymore because we have Christ, so we, we bring our prayers. 
So every morning we're praying for our children. Lord, keep them today. Spare them today. Save them today if they're not saved. Help them to walk true to Jesus today. But at night when we go to bed, and hopefully a few times during the day, we cry out to God too for our children. But at night when we go to bed, we say, wash away all of our sins today and all the sins of our children and our grandchildren. Be merciful, you see. It's a way of surrendering them to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And certainly as a grandparent, the very best thing we can do for our grandchildren is to pray to remember them at the throne of grace. Preserve them, Lord, at school. Preserve them from sin. Preserve them by drawing them to thyself, and so on. Fourth, we bring our children to Christ by speaking to them and living with them, speaking to them and living with them in a Christ-centered way that is grounded in repentance and faith. In a Christ-centered way that is grounded in repentance and faith. And what do I mean by that? Well, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, Matthew 12 says. So it's important that our children feel from us, feel from us, that the key thing in our lives is that we live a life of faith and repentance in Christ. Faith in Christ, repentance before Christ. So that they can see the real thing in us. It's not that they won't see lots of shortcomings. They will. You can't hide who you are from your children. But they ought to be able to say, my dad, my mom, love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. I've seen them repent. I've even seen them say, I'm sorry to each other or to us, uh, as well as to God. And I see in their lives that their faith is in Christ. I hear it in their prayers. I hear it in their conversation. They're walking in a Christ-centered way, despite their shortcomings. That's what's incumbent upon us to convey to our children. And we don't purposely do that in front of them and then act like a monster when they're gone. No, no, no. This is a way of life. This is a way of life. And we must speak to them, not only live with them that way, but we also speak to them about that way themselves. That they are baptized, they must also live this way. They must live by faith. They must live a penitent lifestyle. So this is the key point. Children must see in their parents and grandparents the lifestyle that we are telling them to live. We cannot be like a Pharisee in our homes. You know, Jesus said, it's like you're a signpost. And you're pointing the direction, but you don't walk an inch that way yourself. That tears down everything you're saying. You say, well, Dad, you can tell me that, but you don't live that way. And so this is, this is a very important thing. We're bringing them implicitly to Christ when our own lives, which is the second most important book they will ever read. First is the Bible. Second is the lives of their parents. Because that will give an impression on them, yea or nay, 
whether Christianity is true or not, whether it's worth its salt. And over and over and over again, there's exceptions, but over and over again, when parents don't set an example, when children are adults, they often leave the church altogether. But where parents set an example and children see the reality of the faith of their parents, that makes an impression even on a five-year-old as you can never wipe away. That's why Martin Luther said, give me your children, Roman Catholics, give me your children until they're seven years of age and you can have them for the rest of your life. Because I will show them by my words and by my life. And that will imprint upon them what they, what they need. Number five. Strive to make a godly impression on your children with your life. Um, now, I, I said already a little bit about that, but I want to just add a couple thoughts here. So the Puritans made a big deal of this. They said, I love this example, a child is like warm wax. In the olden days, um, you would... You would you would bear a seal that is impressed on, on a child. Or I'm sorry, I got this wrong. He will bear a seal that is impressed on him throughout his life. So what they're referring to here is the old custom of pressing a metal seal into softened wax so that the wax takes the impression of the seal. And so it's not just spiritual life, which was my last point, but it's a whole way of life that parents pass on to the children. Children tend to enjoy the things their parents enjoy. Children tend to get upset about the things their parents get upset about. They weep over what their parents weep, weep about. They absorb the pathos, the ethos, the emphases, the realities of who we are. Now, those impressions are often imprinted upon them, like, like a seal in wax, without them being aware of it, and even without us sometimes being aware of it. Because we just take for granted, this is the way people are, this is the way they live, and we don't hardly think about it. So, Thomas Watson put it this way, love... Love commands honor. How can a parent but love the child who is his living picture, nay, part of himself? The child is the father in the second edition. And then he goes on and he has another longer example about the mother. He says, like, if you bring your, if you bring, if you had a pool of water on a table and you bring your finger through it, the water will tend to follow the finger, and so the daughter will follow the mother. And then he has yet another example of the, the, the mother and the daughter. If they look into a mirror, they're really the second edition of their father and their mother when they were young. Um, and, and, and all of these examples are trying to say, our children tend to become like us, for better or for worse. That's, that's a little scary thought. But... What we want to do then is we want to make this vow to God 
with his help, and we'll fall short of it, but make the vow, make a resolution that Thomas Boston made. He said, Lord, wherever I go, wherever I go, this, as a pastor, whoever I visit, whenever I preach, whenever I teach, I want to leave the savor, the smell of Christ behind. So that when I leave that place, say I'm visiting a, a couple that's been married 60 years in their home. When I leave that place, I, I want to leave something of Christ behind, smell of Christ behind. Now, if you transfer that idea into the home, you see, through family worship, through conversation about daily things, I want to leave the savor of Christ behind for my children every day. That's a tall order. But if my children see me getting more interested in uh, the score of a ball game, more excited about that, then in family worship I seem really laid back and I'm just going through the motions. What do I say to my children? I'm not saying anything directly, but what am I conveying? I'm conveying, well, we've got to do family worship again, but, you know, life is really exciting about when, when we get involved and heavily involved. I'm not saying, I'm not reflecting here on the value or the disvalue of a ball game. I'm just talking about priorities. Our children need to see in us the priority. Christ. They need to see that. They need to see, be able to say, one thing I know, my mom, my dad, loved the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Number six, we bring our children to Christ when we show our children both our reverence for God and our joy toward God. Our reverence for God and our joy toward God. See, if you only have Joy, you, 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 you've seen people like that, right? They're Christians. They're happy about everything. They're very, and they have a very contagious, happy personality. But they also joke about things that are semi-irreverent many times. And you get a queasy feeling like, where's the reverence? It's just all happy, happy, clappy, clappy. I'm not jealous of that, and I don't think you are either. There's a depth in the Christian life. That Calvin put it this way, it's, it's a controlled joy. It's not a giddy kind of joy. It's a, it's a joy that is subdued because I'm still a sinner. And I'm still under the authority of God. and I'm filled with reverence for him, for his love, for his holiness, for his justice. And so our children need to see that combination in us. That life is serious, and we owe great reverence to God. At the same time, we have a true joy in God that the world doesn't know anything of. And what I'm saying to you is that you're actually bringing your children to Christ when that, when that interlocking reverence and joy come together, and, and like they're glued to each other. That presents the same kind of uh, truth 
that Jesus presented when his disciples came to him and said, remember that? Teach us how to pray. And he said, when you pray, pray this way, our Father, well, that's very joyous, at least hopefully our children think that's joyous, which art in heaven. Reverence, see? Reverential joy. Our Father, which art in heaven. And that, that whole attitude of the introduction to the Lord's Prayer is what, is what I'm, I'm trying to get across to you right now. So, there's a joy, there's a peace, there's a freshness, there's a reality in our relationship with Christ that passes all understanding. But there's also a reverence, there's a sobriety that is equally, equally powerful. So you want your children seeing the joy you have in going to God's house. You want them to see the joy you have when you wake up on Sunday morning and this is the Lord's day. We get to hear what God has to say to us today. It's wonderful. You want them to see the joy you take delight in when you can bow before God in prayer, when you can sing a psalm together, when your heart is moved by the truths of the Bible. And, of course, the... Um, the joy of the Lord can be so great at times in our lives that, that yes, our eyes fill with tears. It's not a sad joy. That's a happy joy. We're moved. Thanks be unto God. Or is that unspeakable? So, that's another way. Seventhly, we, we, we bring our children to, to Christ when we teach them the whole counsel of God. Law and gospel. Law and gospel. We must teach them the law to convict them, to show them the heinousness of sin, the need for the Savior, to offer guidelines on how to live. But we must also show them the fullness of the gospel. We must show them the gospel is available for the greatest sinner, for the biggest naughty boy or naughty girl. Now, we must do that in the humdrum of daily life, applying different things that happen from nature or on travel together or from life's lessons as opportunity affords itself. We must do that by either homeschooling or, or sending them to the Christian school. We must do that through the church. But you see, the church and the school and these humdrum things in daily life, these are all, may I say it, substitutes for the bullseye of teaching them the whole counsel of God. And the bullseye is family worship. Every day, like a steady dripping. It's very difficult sometimes when children are very young and you have to be so elementary and you think they're not listening and you're discouraged. But keep at it. Keep at it. As they grow older, they'll learn to sit better. They'll learn to listen more. And that daily, daily teaching, teaching them the whole Bible, law and gospel, uh, five minutes a day, ten minutes a day, that's critical to bring them to, to Jesus. Now, my case, my dad, 
had a special, special family worship, prolonged family worship that went on for about an hour on Sunday evenings. And we all got to pick out psalters. We all sang, everyone got to pick out a psalter. We always sang two stanzas from the first, I don't know why it was always that, but two stanzas from a psalter. We could pick out the stanzas. So there's seven people in our family, so that's singing 14 stanzas. And, you know, my sister would be playing the piano. And then after that, my dad would pick up Pilgrim's Progress and read it to us for 30 minutes. But we would interrupt him with questions, which he loved. He loved that. And he'd set the book down, and he'd teach us. And while he was teaching us, he'd often get teary-eyed. Sometimes the tears would just drip down his face. And they weren't fake, I'll tell you that. And we knew that my dad loved our souls. And that is priceless. That family worship on Sunday evening, just a Sunday evening family worship, when my parents had their 50th wedding anniversary and all five of us stood up and thanked my parents for one thing each, all five of us, we, we refused to talk to each other ahead of time, all five of us said, Sunday evening, family worship, Pilgrim's Progress. That was the greatest gift our dad gave to us. And he was teaching us. He said things in the, those family worship sessions I've remembered my whole life. Especially when he said, and this was one of his favorite things to do, I'm going to tell you something now. I hope you never forget. I'm going to, I hope I can write it with an iron pen on your heart. When he said that expression, an iron pen on your heart, I knew something big was coming. And then he'd have some statement. And almost inevitably, I think, why didn't I ever think of that? You know, that's common sense. But teaching, teaching, teaching. That's bringing, that's bringing your children to Christ. Now, that gets easier as, as they get older, hopefully, as long as they're not rebellious, because you can start teaching them more and more at an adult level, and that, that's, that's wonderful as well. All right, I made it through number seven. I'm sorry I didn't quite make it. We're going to do one more, uh, one more lesson under this theme uh, two weeks from now. Next week is Lord's Supper, so we'll come back for number four. Then we'll move on to another subject. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for these uh, simple, yet I hope important lessons for leading our children to Jesus. We know, Lord, that thou alone canst do it, ultimately and savingly, but we also know that thy common way of doing it is through these kinds of means. So help us to give our children these means and help us to look to thee for the saving work of thy Holy Spirit to take these means and to press it in, not just to their minds, but to press it in their souls like seals impressed with wax. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.